0: A big part of what China does is actually undermine democratic norms and transparency, and they foment corruption in order to advance their goals in certain countries. It is the week of June 14th, and welcome to episode 84 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy.
1: Today, we have Lauren Dealey-Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey-Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council, Jamil Jaffer. NSI founder and executive director, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Returning guest, Rob Walker, NSI visiting fellow and executive director of the Homeland Security Experts Group. And I'm Grant Haver, NSI policy program manager.
0: So last week and this week, President Biden is engaged in His first foreign trip as president, he met with G7 leaders over the weekend, and he's got NATO meetings in Brussels early this week. So far, the emerging theme seems to be that Joe Biden is not Donald Trump, and Europeans think that's pretty good. The phrase, America is back, is being repeated by everyone. Lots of smiles, pats on the back, Uh, picturesque scenes of the group all meeting together, appropriately socially distanced. Jamil, do you miss the days when our president would pout, call people names, throw tantrums, and demand that the Europeans spend more on defense?
2: Well, look, I mean, Les, it's not the case that America's back. America's been there the whole time. It's just Europeans didn't like the last version of America. And look, there's a lot of reasons to not love the former president. Uh, His tone, his attitude, uh, his approach was obviously deeply off-putting. Some of his policy ideas were good. A lot of them were terrible. Um, his theory that he could, uh, he could get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, that was a fail. Uh, but on the other side of it, he, has, he did appear to successfully engage in an effort where uh, certain Middle East nations were able to come out and express their support for one another, including uh, the Abraham Accords. Um, and so, you know, we've seen, uh, look, the, the Europeans are obviously happier having Joe Biden around. Um, but, you know, and the Europeans happy is good for business, I suppose. Uh, but what I really want to see is uh, with the Europeans is, good, good that you're happy with Joe Biden. Now let's get together and figure out how to solve the China problem, how to address the Russia problem. Uh, obviously, some good announcements from the Biden administration about uh, the effort to bring the allies together around a, uh, a response uh, to the Belt and Road plan uh, and the like. At the same time, you know, these are words on paper. Let's see some commitments. Let's see some action. And by the way, Donald Trump is right to tell the Europeans to spend more on defense spending. Bob Corker said it back in the day. He was right back then too, and you know Joe Biden ought to ought to keep the pressure on.
0: Lauren, uh, I know you appreciated that rare reference to the Iran nuclear deal. Let's let's talk about some of the things that uh, President Biden has done or not done that the Europeans actually don't like. Uh, he expressed willingness to suspend intellectual property rights for pharmaceutical companies and vaccines. The Europeans were very much against that. Also, uh, President Biden has not lifted the tariffs on steel and aluminum that were uh, from Europe that were imposed by President Trump. When asked about this, President Biden said, in, uh, got a look of incredulity on his face and said, come on, man, 120 days. Now, in fact, it's been closer to 140 days that he's been president. I think we can forgive him a little bit, his not perfect ability to do math in public. That's fine. But let's talk about the real issue here, which is that much more so than meets the eye, President Biden is continuing a lot of the policies of President Trump. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, I'd say that we're not seeing, uh, oh, to go back to some of what Jimmy was saying as well, we're not seeing a continuation of the Trump presidency under a new heading. That's very clear and appreciated both at home and abroad. Um, I think we've all made that very clear in a lot of different ways. I think that they are reviewing tariffs. I think that's something, you know, it's on the list of things to do. It's not all going to get done on day one. Um, And, you know, despite anyone's ability to do math on their feet in public, we're we're still fairly early on. Um, I think that what you are seeing change are the things that... Reassure the Europeans in ways that they have been most concerned about over the last four years. You're seeing, you've seen such heightened levels of just general unpredictability coming out of the U.S., where we do one thing, we say one thing, we tweet one thing, and they all mean something different, and no one knows where we stand on any given day. That there was just this constant, ongoing sense of whiplash um, when it came to figuring out where the United States stands. And I think that is over. That is not a policy that has continued. I think that we're back to business as usual, which with the Europeans does not mean that we all agree and move forward on every single policy priority that the Europeans have and the U.S. supports, that we have our own agenda, we have our own priorities, and we will continue to move forward on those. But we are doing so in a way that now makes it very clear yet again that these are our allies, these are our friends, these are relationships that matter to us as a country, and once again as a nation, we can be relied
0: on. Good segue to Rob. How much does uh, Europe really matter to the Biden administration, uh, despite the happy talk and the good pictures? And Biden is not Donald Trump, and he's going to be nice to people instead of mean to people. Uh, do the Europeans really matter? Much of the focus of the Biden administration policy making thus far has been. Uh, regarding our economic competition with China. Uh, One small example on the NSC staff, they've created two very powerful positions of NSC coordinator, one's for China, one's for the Middle East. There is no coordinator for Europe. A little bit of a sign there that maybe it's not important. Um, How do you think the Biden administration really prioritizes Europe right now?
4: Interesting uh, perspective. I mean, you look at his first foreign trip is to Europe. Uh, The vice president's of course was uh, to Central America. Did a very high-profile uh, senior-level stakeholder trip to uh, to um, East Asia early on, so it's hard to tell sort of where it falls. Uh, I I would say that my analysis would be that Europe is definitely not chief among equals, as sort of has been for the past seventy years of American foreign policy. Um, but then at the same time, they've clearly made some steps to appease European leaders, uh, things such as uh, re- renewing the Nord Stream two p- uh, pipeline. Uh, getting back into the paris climate change uh, Accords, um, not be, really being firm on on ukraine issues with russia and and then um you know renewing the jtpoa talks that there's several things there that that lead to you know supportive of uh typical European positions um and then there's a, a bit of softness towards russia on on the other hand so I, it's a good question and I think in the next few months we'll see how things begin to play out but i I certainly think that uh, the center of gravity of this administration is not looking towards Europe.
3: Can I chime in on something really quick there, Les, just adding on to what Rob was saying about the NSC role creation? I think it's important to remember that NSC roles and organization and structure isn't built around, you know, friendship bracelets. You know, you, you don't build an entire senior directorship around who's our BFF of the day. Um, And we have some very significant challenges and significant shifts in the geopolitical structure that require us to address in a new way and with new levels of comprehensive effort, um, evolving issues around China and around the Middle East. There have already been issues there. Obviously, these aren't new things that just occurred, but those require a different amount of effort than Europe does um, vis-a-vis the, the security of the United States. So I think the new positions make sense. Um, and I think when we, you know, start building senior directorships around, around best friends and, and, you know, recess playground cliques, then, then we can talk again.
0: Jamil, let's try to get a little criticism of the administration going here. Do you think, uh, the, the overt diplomacy with the Europeans, uh, this big showy trip, Uh, as the first for President Biden, uh, a lot of uh, different kind of talk coming out is really going to help bring European allies towards us on the whole competition with China question. Italy, of course, has signed up for the Belt, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. That's a big problem for. Uh, for the West, do you think this approach is really going to make any difference in terms of the competition with China? Well,
2: it's a great question, Les, and it's an important one. I think probably the most important of all the questions coming out of uh, this this uh, this uh, you know interaction between our president and the Europeans. Um, you know, it, look, good news on the Italy side. Italy's reviewing uh, that deal again and, and revisiting whether it should stay in that deal. That's a positive move. Uh, I think that Europeans and the and Americans share a lot in terms of our values. We share a common view of democracy and freedom and human rights. We may not always agree on those. The Europeans may have criticism about the way we do things. We may have criticism about their laws or their hypocrisy when they uh, you know, come after us on certain things but do the same thing at home to their own people. right? But there's, there's more that binds us across the transatlantic divide than there is uh, amongst us and the Chinese when it comes to issues of freedom, issues of human rights, issues of oppression, uh, and, and frankly, issues of technology and innovation. right? And so I do think uh, there is an opportunity here, and a unique opportunity. Uh, and it's not Joe Biden specifically; it's it's the United States and Europe uh, that recognize the growing threat that China poses and really bring in bring in pressure to bear. Now, we saw a lot come out of this. Like we talked about, we talked about the Belt and Road response. Uh, we talked about this. We, we haven't talked about. We can talk about the technology and trade council. Uh, that's likely to co- be announced uh, publicly tomorrow that's been sort of discussed. Um, but I think one of the challenges is those are all great conceptually, and they're really important if we actually use them and take action. And that requires us and the Europeans saying, you know, we gotta, we're going to put aside our silly squabbling between us over antitrust issues or over, you know, uh, you know, this crazy Digital Markets Act where they're trying to sort of clearly go after a handful of American companies, right? And really what we're going to say is we're going to come together, we're going to try and unify our approach, and it's going to be focused on China and by the way, Russia too, although the Europeans have mixed views on Russia in part because of you know, the natural gas and the heating oil issues and the like, um, and, and frankly, there's the presence of Russia there in the region. Um, but we should demonstrate that countries like Russia and China have a different set of values, different set of morals, different set of ideas about freedom. And I do think that Joe Biden's advocacy and, his, and him making this his first big trip and making a show of it is helpful in that regard. The key is, though, action, not words. There's been a lot of words spoken, a lot of smiling, a lot of happiness. Now I want to see real action.
0: Rob, Lauren, as I recall, Boris Johnson, uh, the current prime minister of uh, the United Kingdom, was also prime minister during the Trump administration. I recall there being a lot of discussion about all of the problems with implementing Brexit, uh, issues with the Irish issues between uh, the British and Europe, uh, possible trade deal with the U.S. That all seems to have gone away. We don't seem to be talking about problems with brexit anymore is everything okay on that front
3: i think that just because uh, a handful of americans aren't sitting around pontificating on what's happening with brexit doesn't mean that people actually involved in the conversations aren't actually still moving and dealing with those issues and i think we saw some of that um play out in the in the Uh, G7 meetings over the past few days that, you know, there are still tensions there. There are still issues being resolved, very significant issues there being resolved. You mentioned, you know, Northern Ireland. Um, And I think that it's hard for us to get a sense from this side of the Atlantic of the internal levels of trust that were lost in that process. And I think they have a lot of rebuilding to do over there on that front and those concerns and those levels of mistrust are going to play out for a long time, whether we see them in headlines or not.
0: Rob, how do you think the Biden administration is going to handle the fact that still a lot of our uh, European allies in NATO are not spending the expected 2% on national defense? Well, this is one Trump policy I hope they continue, and that is encouraging them and controlling
4: them to get up to that level uh, and to for NATO to clearly define what it means to spend 2% on defense. What do we define as defense? Is it education? Is it hard tanks and bullets, etc. Um, I I would like to see something coming out of NATO, uh, and I think uh, the Secretary General alluded to it yesterday uh, on the level of uh, cybersecurity threat and and the attack on one being an attack on all Article Five. Um, uh, triggering events, so like to watch how um, how the administration will handle that. Will they loop uh, a grandiose cybersecurity program within um, within one of those less than two percent countries into that count? Uh, clearly, that might matter. Uh, we need to watch that for the next few weeks.
0: So, I, I want to get everyone's sense on on one other topic before we move on to Grant's kleptocracy issue, uh, which is uh, vaccine diplomacy. I think one of the very positive things to come out of what happened this weekend was President Biden's announcement that the U.S. is going to contribute half a billion vaccines to the, to the COVAX, to the world effort to bring vaccines to the developing world, countries that can't produce them or afford them on their own in most cases Uh, That seems like a huge uh, positive development to me. This is a real endorsement of at least some of the utility of multilateralism. The Europeans uh, appear to be gathering together to match that half billion vaccines and also make a big difference in that response. So uh, does anyone else kind of want to weigh in here on how solving that problem goes a heck of a long way towards restoring whatever stature the U.S. lost in the last few years? I made that a pretty good softball, I think.
3: I would weigh in and agree. Um, I think it was a great decision. I think that the direction that um, the U.S. is leading in and that Europe you know, is is having conversations. and looks like, as you said, they're going to go the same way on. I think it makes a big difference, not only from a humanitarian perspective of actually doing what we can with what we have to be able to save, you know, millions of people. Uh, But from a diplomatic perspective, yes, absolutely. This is this is game changer.
2: I totally agree. I think it's I think it's the right move. I get I get the sort of, you know, internal disagreements and and disagreements and and our allies, but it's the right it's it's what we need to do to get the ball rolling here. Um, and, And frankly, it's a it's a short-term short-term cost for long-term benefit. And 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 I recognize the the obvious importance of, of preserving innovation and protecting that uh, when you can. Uh, but there are times at which you know you need to take other actions. This might be that one time.
4: Yeah I'll join the chorus. Absolute right move. Um, I just wonder if we're a day late and a dollar short since Russia and China got ahead of us on that game. Uh, but the good news coming out today is that there's now a fourth vaccine in the works. Um, So we'll be able to distribute far more than those other two countries. And of course, there's efficacy questions about uh, Sinovacs for sure.
1: Grant, over to you. Great. Thanks, Les. Um, so President Biden recently released a national security study memorandum meant to establish combating corruption as a core U.S. national security uh, national security interest. This aligned with the launch of the counter-kleptocracy caucus in Congress. Uh, so let's put the bottom line up front. When we look back on the Biden administration, will this be seen as a transformative moment that expands the scope of what we think is national security? Or will this be a meaningless Memo of interest only to historians. Jamil, what do you think?
2: Well, I think it's actually a little bit of both. I think, in a lot of ways, this talk about kleptocracy and, and corruption um, you know, is, is really important because it demonstrates and highlights the differences between our value system when it comes to our economics, right? And the idea of a free market and the way a free market functions, right? As opposed to places overseas where that's not the case and where uh, where American companies are hamstrung uh, because we have laws that prohibit us from engaging in corrupt activities and a lot of other countries don't. And so I think it highlights uh, that problem, puts a spotlight on it. It also turns out there's a high correlation between corruption, kleptocracy, um, and, and bad behavior in the international community, right? In many ways, the Chinese regime, the Russian regime, the North Koreans, uh, the, and the Iranians all have massive elements of this kleptocracy and corruption. And so us calling that out and use that as part of our toolkit in responding to these nations, I think is critically important. That being said, right, look, again, I, I hate to keep saying it, I sound like a broken record, but, you know, words are nice, action is key, right? And when we when we decided to bring the Magnitsky sanctions in place and start putting those in place against the Russians, they had an impact, right? But sanctions only go so far. And so if our entire plan behind corruption and kleptocracy is a lot of nice words, some prosecutions and a handful of sanctions that will not solve the problem, right? And also simply handstring American companies, okay, making it harder for them to operate in a global situation where there is massive corruption and the like is also not the answer. The answer is going after those who are, those regimes that are corrupt, going after those organizations, going after the the enablement by other nation states, including Europeans and our allies who don't have similar issues on their companies. That's going to make the difference. We got to make it real, and and you know I don't. I'm not sure I see signs of that actually happening. If my administration pull it off, good on them. It's going to be very hard to do. We'll see what Congress does alongside them because they're going to be a key part of this too.
1: Yeah. So, Rob, how do we make this real? How do we go from sort of these words on paper to like actual action in your mind? Especially as this crosses kind of the the lines of law enforcement and national security.
4: We've got to be patient. This is not going to change overnight. We are asking cultures to fully shift the way they think about how they govern themselves, how they produce their 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 um, their national infrastructure. Uh, It's just something that we've got to take time to work through. Uh, I hope this doesn't end up being a footnote in uh, in a history book 40 years from now. Uh, But I hope it rather I hope it is like the first step in uh, in the long journey to encouraging other cultures to change. You know, we we've talked several times uh, when I've been on about Iraq and Afghanistan. uh, Those would be two primary examples I could think of where uh, corruption and, and and other forms are of what we think of as abhorrent behavior are normalized, and it's going to take generations for some of this to change.
1: So, Les, are are we going to look back on this and say, Ah, yes, this was the moment. This is when we put corruption front and center. Or are we going to think this is just you know another democratic talking point about what national security should be?
0: Well, I I suspect that the uh, very many. Paid apparatchiks of the Biden administration are going to try to point to this moment as hugely significant, Uh, and you know, kudos to them. Good luck. I think in reality, this movement began in the Senate with Senator John McCain and Senator Ben Cardin. They were working on this issue for years to make corruption and kleptocracy part of a uh, human rights-oriented sanctions regime. They did a lot of hard work. Uh, a lot of it was it, this was really Congress leading on an important issue. And Congress was was years ahead of the executive branch on this matter. Note, uh, kudos to President Biden for, for embracing it. That's good for him. I would note uh, that President Trump also embraced it. He had Magnitsky sanctions on individuals in Central Africa, in Central America, in Southeast Asia, in the Middle East. Uh, He also did this. It wasn't quite with the same with this fanfare. And of course, he was his rhetoric on human rights was not uh, nearly as good as Biden's. But in actuality, he did a lot of work in this area. Also, it has spread to London. Uh, The UK Parliament is also adopting a global Magnitsky legislative approach. That's terrific. One, One of I think one of the important aspects of the global Magnitsky law is that it gives a role to Congress to make suggestions to the executive branch for individuals that can be targeted with this. I think it's, um, and I think that's all very interesting and fascinating, it is, in terms of the national security sphere, I think there's there's a ton of work to do. It is unclear to me that there's a direct line from this initiative to a better outcome in the competition with China, but I think we have to do it. It's gonna be very complicated. A big part of what China does is actually undermine democratic norms and transparency, and uh, they foment corruption in order to advance their goals in certain countries. This is a direct strike against it. We have to be a hundred percent behind it. We're going to have to sell it across the board. We're going to have to work very hard in capitals and developing countries to make people understand why this is important and make it work. It's going, to, it's going to be a big effort. If this is the beginning of that, then that's great, and we should give some credit per- to President Biden.
1: Les, let's drill down on that a little bit. You know, you helped shepherd the Global Magnitsky Act through Congress through through your diligent work. You know, we are we are pushing back against these human rights abuses and corruption. Uh, Jamil just said at the beginning of this, we're we're not doing it enough. So what would your recommendation be? Would you want to see a thousand names on that list? Would you wanna see us ramp up harder? What what does that look like in your mind?
0: I don't, I don't particularly want to see a thousand names on the list. What I would like to see is coordination between the State Department, the Treasury Department, uh, and other agencies of the government that are all involved in this. I'd like to see some ground truth coming from our embassies around the world. I would like to see our government work in sync with each other so that uh, these things withstand scrutiny and that they advance not just our values, but also our strategic goals in certain countries. There may be times when we want to forego some of those sanctions to achieve a certain thing. That's fine with me. Uh, But we we need all parts of our government in sync. It's that's that's a big management issue. Frankly, I think the last administration not so good on the management front. I'm hoping this one where they seem to have more of a team esprit de corps will do a little bit better job on that.
1: So. Lauren, you worked at the intersection between the executive and legislative branches at the NSC. Are, do you have any tips for the Biden team on how do you to actually action this and, and work together? Or do you think that, you know, this is such a complex problem that it will take years and years and years to actually see it? be resolved um,
3: I think all of that is true uh, this is not a problem you solve overnight this is not a problem you solve with a declaration or a single silver bullet law uh, whether it's global or domestic um, I think that one of the things that we haven't mentioned so far in talking about this effort is it's linked to domestic impact that there is you know this isn't just a corruption elsewhere that these tie in here these tie in here into real estate these tie here into finance. There are what I do like seeing about um, the the move that Biden made was the whole of government approach where there is an element to look at what we can do here at home without having to rely on and wait for and encourage other people to move before we can actually do something on our front as well. So I think there's a lot of potential there. And I I honestly agree with what everyone else has said that this has the potential to be very big and very impactful, but it's going to depend as we see how it plays out over time. There's, there's the potential for teeth here. Let's see if they can actually go out and bite something. Um, and I think that domestically to identify the specific things that we can do. There are things we can do domestically that are easy and things we can do domestically that are a much heavier lift that are more challenging. And, you know, from that, from from a very old perspective on that intersection between the executive and the legislative, I think that it's a good sign there's a, you know, a new caucus formed in Congress. I think there are going to be some folks there, um, you know, who are going to be allies on this issue as there have already been and there will continue to be. And I think there's potential to grow that there and get some of that low hanging fruit done build a little momentum. Um, and I think that's going to be something that that will build into the the global movement as we see it play out.
1: So it's funny that you bring up the the domestic angle on this. There were actually two really interesting pieces that were released last week, one in ProPublica and one in Axios. The ProPublica release was of many wealthy Americans who have paid nothing in taxes for years. Uh, so the richest of us not paying anything, whether that be legal or illegal, they they did not find any illegality in the way that they did their taxes. The second uh, piece I thought was really interesting was from Axios, where Felix Samen, uh said that as much as 50 percent of the unemployment uh, uh, plus up from the Biden administration could have been stolen by criminal syndicates abroad through false unemployment claims. So I think the domestic angle really cuts both ways. What do you guys think? Are we actually, given our political divisions, going to be able to crack down on the corruption that emanates from the United States?
2: Well, I mean, it's a great question. Look, I mean, I, I guess uh, to your point about the first question, I, not, it's not corruption if people are lawfully, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking advantage of loopholes or whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, elements of the law to to not pay taxes. I think obviously everybody feels like everyone should pay their fair share, right? And it's just a question of you know what what the system looks like. There's been a lot of people who have advocated for a very simple tax, right? The kind of thing you can put you can put on a postcard, as Ross Perot uh, back in the day once said. Um, but uh, but look, I mean, I think that the uh, and again, it's corruption if, in fact, it's the state on the tape, right? And so, when it comes to the this fraud that we're talking about with respect to the uh, the the uh, the gover- the the government benefits coming out of COVID, right? That's again, that's just fraud. Really, it's overseas fraud, right? It's not really the kind of corruption I think that we're talking about getting at here. Now, if that's happening with the knowledge of the state, the state's empowering it, like we see in Russia with cybercrime uh, and Bitcoin and like, that's when we need to go after the state and say, "Look, you're involved in this corrupt activity. You're involved in." In a kleptocratic uh, uh, effort, and and that's where we go after it here. I don't see any evidence, at least the case uh, that, that this is uh, these are U.S. government officials on the take. Although uh, we have seen some interesting prosecutions, including a Matt Gates buddy um, who used who used uh, who used uh, the tax collector down in Florida who uh, who used his position to literally write himself checks to his own name. I mean, not the smartest, not the sharpest criminal in the world. Uh, this guy, um, and then obviously a lot of other uh, tr- disturbing things about him uh, too, um, and so. Uh, but that to me, to me, this is really um, uh, those examples are more about about fraud um, and and about and about sort of lawful uh, tax advantages where, yes, we maybe need to fix the system. But, you know, it's really, to me, that's not really the cr- sort of corruption in the United States that I'd be, be, be thinking about.
0: Grant, can I just come to the defense of these uh, poor rich people who have been targeted by Uh, These left wing uh, journalists with an agenda. First of all, uh, tax returns are not meant to be public. They are private. They should not be released. That is not something that should happen. None of us would want our tax releases made public. And I don't think that's fair to rich people either. Second of all, just because you have a ton of money doesn't mean that you made a ton of money that year. So these these reports that came out were all too happy to inflate numbers in the right way and deflate other numbers in the wrong way to make it look like these folks were on the take or something. They were not. One of the great things about our system is that you can come here and if you have a good idea, you can make a billion dollars. That's a good thing, so I think this this kind of scare tactic and this um this envy thing is is the wrong approach. I don't think it has anything to do with corruption personally and i don't uh and I think that we should not be afraid to defend our rich americans
1: so Jamil to to circle back to one of the points you made you you were talking about uh you know state uh, you know acquiescence to criminality and specifically brought up, you know, cryptocurrency. We've seen recently the use of ransomware to attack colonial pipeline, to attack JBS. You know, what do you think is should be our response to state actors that harbor these criminals? And is there a, a reason that, that cryptocurrencies should be allowed to exist that isn't just purely about corruption?
2: Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits to cryptocurrencies, right? We talk about uh, people's access to money, and access to transfer that money, right? Technology already has brought huge amounts of access to the modern financial system uh, through fintech and the like. And crypto is one element of that. So I don't, think, I don't think I'm ready to throw away cryptocurrency because a bunch of bad actors are using it to buy drugs or weapons or, or engage in ransomware. Uh, in fact, it's actually one of the interesting things about the, the very aspect of cryptocurrency that makes it so interesting is, the, is its public nature, right? The fact that you can watch the transactions as they happen, it's all on a public blockchain ledger. It's actually how the FBI was able to tra- watch the colonial pipeline money go from account A to account B to account C to account D, right? Maybe they should transfer it more times. Maybe they should break up into smaller pieces. But there's a lot of reasons to think that these guys weren't, again, uh, weren't doing this the best way. The most interesting thing about what the FBI did, though, with the ransomware thing, was they went and got a an F a court order from a from a federal district court in northern Ca- in northern California to seize the money. But in order to seize that money, as as people who use Bitcoin now, you can't just have to, you don't just have to have the Bitcoin account know where the money is. You have to have that private key to get in, sort of that the passcode. Uh, like your pin but a lot longer and a lot more complicated the fbi just in their affidavit getting the warrant says we oh, we have the pin really interesting question how do they get the pin was it was it stolen from the hackers through um through a uh a signals intelligence collected overseas by our by our intelligence agencies did they did they corrupt one of the members of the criminal hacking is one of the criminal hacking uh, members on on the take uh, on, on taking money from the u.s government uh in order to give us information or just or being uh, you know, on the verge of being indicted and therefore giving up information, were they able to get the hackers to transfer to an account we controlled, right? Which is why we had the private key, right? Or something else, right? There was a, or it was a bad password security on their side, and they stored the private key somewhere. We went there and, and, and broke their password security and got it. In any event, right, what it highlights, though, is ransomware is, is you know, like, like, you know, diamonds are forever. Ransomware is not forever, right? And ransomware is just one small aspect, of a much larger effort by nation states to act themselves and to use their proxies to come after the United States and our allies. In this case, we've seen two Eastern European hacker gangs, clearly some with, tie, with some sort of tie to Russia. It's clear that the Russian government for a long time has allowed these organizations to function, right? Sometimes with their explicit knowledge, more often allowing them to simply operate because some of the officials were on the take, again, back to kleptocracy uh, and corruption. Uh, and, and sometimes, or some combination of all three, where they were actual Russian government hackers who were on nights and weekends sort of making money for themselves, right? Very little happens in in Russia without Vladimir Putin's no no, no knowledge, right? Or at least the knowledge of the people around him and his coterie, right? And so uh, this idea that nation states can get off scot-free, I think President Biden is right to try and hold Russia accountable, right? He also shouldn't give in to these silly things where where Biden's like, well, where, where Putin's like, well, if, if I'll give you my criminals, if you give me yours, right? We all know who's going to end up on that list, and those are our people who defend American freedom, right? Not not actually corrupt people. We have a legitimate system. It's one of the things. It's one of the challenges with the Russians and the Chinese. They don't have legitimate systems based on uh, real consent of the governed. Although you know the Russians hold elections, uh, which seem to which seem to play out. Um, so look, I think I think um, I think it's an important issue. Um, but I think it's, it's also important that we really identify where nation states are, are engaged in this behavior or where they're doing tacitly through the proxy, and then we take action against.
1: So, Rob, one of the things you mentioned up top was that, you know, we often talk about Afghanistan and Iraq on this show, but we don't really talk about, you know, corruption as a part of that and kleptocracy as a part of that. Um, do you think there were are any lessons we learned from our our time in Iraq and our time in Afghanistan that we could use to combat corruption elsewhere, or that we still need to get right in order to have a stable Iraq
0: and Afghanistan.
4: But looking beyond, uh, there's tons of lessons learned about how we stabilize other countries that we can take from that. But it's uh, acceptance of or an understanding of the local war, the local Norms uh, is definitely critical, and you know, I, I got on the ground in Iraq in 2003, and you know, the the mandate was no corruption. So if I pay a contractor, the contractor does you know the exact amount of work that I paid him to do. But that's not the way the system worked there. So it was a learning curve for us along the way. Um, we ended up getting less work for the value that we paid, and and, and actually inflating um, ended up inflating. Uh, uh, Wager than certain areas and greasing the palms of folks that we didn't intend to. Um, I I I think we have to be very careful in how we approach this because the the one lesson learned I would take from the entire war on on terror is that there are second and third order effects to all of this. So I, I think uh, I think it was Jamil mentioned uh, real estate, right? That's when when the Trump administration was floating about two years ago the idea of uh, putting. Um, Mexican cartels on the foreign uh, terrorist watch list or foreign terrorist uh, list. Um, There's a lot that comes up in terms of legitimate U.S. business that are actually doing, uh, whether known or unknown, doing direct business with cartels and other organizations. Um, So when you when you label someone who, you know, onto sanctions lists and such, you've got to watch for the second and third order effects here in the United States and the domestic implications that may have. Uh, I, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying, as I, I think Lester said earlier, this is a huge management issue and it takes a n- not just a passing whole of government approach. It legitimately takes the whole of government. It takes Treasury and DHS and and, and state and and DOD sometimes sitting down and really working through uh, what are going to be the implications of uh, of curtailing our involvement in organizations we say are corrupt or kleptocratic. And I'd like to highlight for Jamil, I, I don't know that the two are related. I'm not saying they are, but it is, uh, it, it is very um, convenient that within days of the FBI being able to seize the uh, cryptocurrency back uh, from the Colonial Pipeline, uh, the news breaks about Operation Trojan Shield, which was a global effort by the FBI Uh, led by the FBI to infiltrate several criminal organizations ended up taking down hundreds 800 I believe or more uh, criminals across the globe through a messaging app that was uh, in fact developed by FBI watch so I don't know that that's how it happened but there's a coincidence for you
1: so Lauren just to kind of wrap this up you know Biden seems to be focused in a lot of different places when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, people are calling them, you know, the new three C's, corruption, climate, and China. Uh, it seems to me that he's going very slowly at combating any of these three things. Do you think that he will be able to effectively move the levers of government to move against these three threats, or do you think you know it's just going to take too much time, or you can only really focus on one thing and you can't walk walk and chew gum at the same time?
3: Well, I think if you're going to run the U.S. government and you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, we already have a problem. Um, I think that the the issues that you just mentioned there are such broad, cross cutting issues, both in what they touch where they they reach, what their impact is, what the solutions are. They touch all levels of government. They touch the private sector. They touch international allies, institutions uh, across the board. And none of those needles are going to move quickly. They never are. Um, you know, some of those are generational needles where these are things that we are going to have to keep doing long past this administration and the next and the next and the next. Um, They are things that will continue. And I think that we've seen some really promising actions taken in the early days of this administration to send us down the right road to start making the kinds of changes and bringing the right players from across that spectrum into the conversations at the places where they can make a difference. Um, And I think that if there has been an administration pieced together from top to bottom that understands the various tools and levers at at the administration's disposal here at home, then I think it's the Biden administration. I think that they can move things in ways that, you know, for sure the last guys couldn't.
1: Let's go to our final uh, segment of the episode. Uh, Rob, why don't you kick us off? What are you following this week? Well, Grant, thank you. And I'll be a little
4: self-serving today. Uh, Please mark your calendars, everyone, for September 13th and 14th and come out to the Salamander Resort and join me in the Homeland Security Experts Group for the inaugural Homeland Security Enterprise Forum. Uh, we have a great lineup uh, taking shape, including incumbent government officials from executive and legislative branches, both parties. This will be a nonpartisan convening focused on uh, invigorating conversations on threats and opportunities in the Homeland Security space, elevating those conversations out of partisanship, and uh, integrating solutions as we move forward. Registration will open up in the next couple of weeks, and Grant, I'll I'll send you a, uh, a flyer to send out with the uh, NSI emailer.
1: Perfect. Les, what are you following this week?
0: So President Biden is going to meet with uh, Vladimir Putin in the next few days uh, for a one-on-one meeting. Uh, I am following the case of two Americans being held uh, as prisoners in Russia, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan. Uh, who are being held on illegitimate charges or totally overblown charges. It's absurd that they are in Russian jail. Uh, Their release would be uh, a significant, I think, uh, confidence-building measure if we're to get to a more, as as Secretary Blinken calls it, a more stable and predictable relationship with Russia. It's just wrong that these Americans uh, are being held captive And uh, and Vladimir Putin can can get a little bit of goodwill by doing the right thing.
1: Uh, So this week I'm following the beautiful game. Uh, The Euro tournament just got kicked off in the past week. And of course, there was off field drama. Uh, Ukraine Ukraine came out with a kit that included a number of political statements, including glory to Ukraine and glory to our heroes. It also had a map on it. The map was of the entirety of Ukraine, including Crimea. Of course. Russia was angry about these inclusions and the use of protest statements on the jersey. UEFA ultimately capitulated to Russia by making the Ukrainians remove glory to our heroes from the jersey as it was a rallying cry for the protests that ultimately led to the overthrow of the Yanukovych regime. Of course, UEFA has a prohibition on political statements. Uh, there is also a kleptocratic angle here since UEFA has a contractual arrangement with Gazprom, the Russian oil company. Uh, soccer, much like other soft power cultural institutions, mirror the geopolitical conflicts of the moment. Democracies should push hard against Russia on every front, especially in the soft power areas where the downside risk is so low. Lauren, what are you following this week?
3: Well, now I'm following Jerseygate. Um so I am really interested. I was really interested to see um, different bits of news that came out of the G7, um, one of which was the uh, agreement to take collective action against ransomware globally. Um, we just talked a lot about ransomware and its, its implications here on all these different issues. Uh, really curious to see how that plays out whether that actually triggers specific action from our European allies um and the ongoing effort here at home to organize on ransomware and and come up with a whole of government uh effort against it so was was really pleased to see that in such a high profile global statement with our allies Um, and really curious to see how it continues to play out.
1: Great. Jamil, round us out. What are you following this week? Well, I'm following the new
2: charges being brought against uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, the uh, former uh leader of uh, Burma, Myanmar. Um, obviously, the military junta uh, is back in power. Uh, they were never really gone. Uh, for those of you, again, back who, who grew up back in the early 90s and the like, uh, the State Law and Order Restoration Council, the military junta that took over i um, imprisoned Aung San Suu Kyi for uh, the better part of, de- of a decade and a half. Uh, their latest iteration is back, um, and back as of early February. Um, they immediately, uh, uh brought charges against, uh, against, uh, uh, uh against the former Burmese leader, former Myanmar leader, leader, Myanmar. Um, one of the challenges here, of course, is that there are, there are claims about Aung San Suu Kyi that have been going around for a long time, right? Particularly, uh, that were brought up by human rights groups, uh, during the, during the massacre of the Rohingya population, which, uh, which she, uh, sort of allowed to take place while the military uh, engaged in it. And then, of course, when, uh, when, they, when it got too much, they pushed her out. Um, I, I do think it is, it is important uh, to note her long captivity uh, under home arrest for over a decade and a half. Uh, and the fact that these charges were brought very quickly uh, with, very little, uh, with very little evidence to support them, at least at the outset. Uh, the, the claim is that she took $600,000 in bribes um, as well as seven pieces of gold, it's almost like we're back in the in the old days. The seven pieces of gold is an interesting little uh, little tidbit there. Um, uh, but a concerning situation. Obviously, the, the return uh, to official power uh, of the of the junta uh, is not ideal um, and does uh, deal a blow to uh, the hopes for a long term uh, political solution in, in in Burma that we thought was sort of on the horizon with uh, with Aung San Suu Kyi back in the game um, and uh, and her National League of Democracy, but. Uh, We'll see how this all plays out. But in the, in the, in the immediate term, uh, a, a further concerning turn of events as she is trial proceeds forward will likely end by the end of July is what it looks like. Um, then we'll see what happens. There, there are a number of other charges being brought against her besides the corruption charges that, that are still remain pending. Um, may actually lead to long, even longer
0: potential imprisonment in jail for her. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsec.
1: If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Alejandro Casquino for research, Lester Munson for hosting,
0: and Grant Hay- Aver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.